You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Morning, Redemption. Um, Yeah, kids. It's time for Kids Church. We'll see y'all later. Uh, We should never get tired of the sound of youth and life um, among us. It really is like a really beautiful thing, and I hate that so much of our culture finds it annoying and off-putting. That stinks. Uh, So a couple announcements. You can go to redemptionhou.com slash today to check those out. Uh, We've got some stuff going on. You can find out a bunch of what that is. Um, I wanted to take a minute this morning just to kind of give you guys an update on uh, the life of redemption. So Red Eye started as your new lead pastor uh, five-ish, six-ish weeks ago. And so a couple of things are coming down the pipe. One, we've got fall kickoff on August 28th. We're going to have snowballs for the kids to like throw at each other um, or you. We're going to have a snow cone like bar. It'll be fun. But like more than that, we could all get together in our holy huddle and we could have a lot of fun and enjoy some fake snow together. Um, But this is a real easy opportunity to like invite people into community, invite people into this shared hope that we actually have. And so I want you to consider like inviting your friends, your family, your coworkers, um, whatever that looks like for you. Um, it's an easy thing for people to show up to and get involved with. It's an easy Sunday for that. So uh, next, in, in the fall, we're going to begin offering some foundational theology classes. The purpose of these are to give you all like a, a, like a foundational base on which to work. We're starting with a course on what is the Bible. And the reason we're doing this is because time and time again, whenever we sit down with anyone to have pastoral conversations over coffee, whatever the conversation is, here's how I've been hurt. Here's what I'm struggling with. I have questions about this or that. It always comes back to, but wait, what do we do with the Bible? Every single time. And so I want to take some time, carve some space out, and actually like spend time training and talking about like what does it mean for us to read the Bible like meaningfully and in like a spiritual sense, uh, but also like there's a whole bunch of other questions that we're going to have and we'll need to have answered. If I could make you take this class, I would. <laughs> um, I think it will just it will help clarify so much of some of the questions and the struggles that we have like as we're trying to figure out what the, what it means to follow Jesus but I also think it could really free you up and disentangle you um, from some things that are unhelpful to like your interior life life of prayer a life of leaning into the scriptures for 
uh, spirituality. So that will be in the fall. There'll be more information about that, but, but we'll have a series of courses. We'll do the same one every fall, the same one every spring, the same one every summer, hence the idea of foundational courses. Um, we're also going to explore putting together a support group for recovering addicts. Um, if you know anyone that's interested in this, we've got a couple people floating around that have said, hey, I would love to be a part of this group, um, but we need more people that would want to be involved. If you, are, if you work in this area and in this space and you have resources you could offer, or if you'd be interested in helping, like, um, right, I will offer real like shepherding and guidance to this group, but I'm not a clinical psychologist and I will not pretend to be one by pointing to Bible verses and saying, hey, here's how you should get your life together. Um, it's a terrible plan. Uh, so if you've got experience in that world, uh, I need your help. I want your help. I would love for you to help out. Let me know. Shoot me a message if you're interested in any way, shape or form in that group. This coming Sunday, so not this Sunday, obviously, but next week, we will have a, a new members class. If you're interested in joining Redemption, want to know what that means, what that looks like, if you have questions about it, it'll be an hour long, three o'clock in the chapel. I promise I will make it as quick and informative um, as possible. There'll be a chance for you to ask questions like learn what it means to actually be a part of Redemption. But I want to give you a, like a glimpse of that. Uh, we are a congregationally-led church, and what that means is that we have always, from the beginning, um, when this church was founded and planted, the idea is that the Holy Spirit lives and works among us, not among the person standing in the front with a microphone, not a, the person who went to Bible college, right? Yes, of course, the Spirit works in me, but the Spirit is also works, uh, very much works in you, and there are a lot more of you than me. And so if I try to do the ministry of redemption, I, it will be a very small thing. If we live into lives of doing the work in the ministry of redemption, all of a sudden, it becomes this big and beautiful and powerful thing. And there's a couple of ways that that, like, really tangibly works uh, well, Right, if you're new here, welcome. I'm glad you're getting a, a little inside peek into um, what it means to be a part of redemption. Uh, like, we need resources. We need your time. We need your money. We need your skill set. We need your ideas. We need your passions. All of it. If, if it's just me doing all of those things, redemption will be limited by that. If it's you, all of a sudden we become that much more richer and beautiful and powerfully used by Jesus to make a difference in our neighborhood and in our city. And so, right, redemption is in a great spot, um, but we need more volunteers for Sunday mornings. We need more volunteers for kids. We need more money. Um, like, we're not running out of money. We're not, like, about to go under or something crazy like that. But, like, for redemption to continue to exist, we need money. Like, we have to pay rent, and we have to pay light bills, and I enjoy eating, and I enjoy paying Mike, right? The, these types of real practical things. And I understand that this gets really gross with churches, and a lot of people are like, well, but what are you doing with my money? I don't know. Go look at my car. What do you think I'm doing with your money? It's obviously not buying uh, Mercedes or helicopters or anything untoward. Right? If you have actual questions about that, I, I will really be happy to sit down and have a conversation about how we're using those resources. They're not being wasted. Um, we're trying to be frugal. We're trying to be wise. Um, the more we have, the more we can do, right? It's that simple. So what I want to like challenge you guys to do is to create, as part of your regular rhythm and spiritual routine, 
will you give us a little bit of your time and will you give us a little bit of your money? Um, what that means is like, will you join a team and serve on Sunday mornings? And if you're not already, I'm talking to members. If you're not a part of this and you're still checking this out, this is not for you. I don't want your money. Keep your money, please. But will you consider like every month or every paycheck or whatever it is, like giving us whatever you can and we can sit down and have a conversation about what that looks like as well. I know there's conversations about, well, it needs to be 10% or it needs to be more. Uh, right. Just start with something. Um, okay. That's all I've got to say about that. So it's been a, it's been a challenging, it's been a challenging week um, for me and for a lot of you guys. I debated last week on whether to say anything and again debated this week, um, but it feels entirely appropriate. Um, Redemption Church officially like lost its first member last Saturday. Um, Joe Graves passed away Saturday late afternoon. Um, there will be uh, a service, a memorial service for him sometime in September, if you knew Joe. If you were encouraged by Joe, like so many of us were, we'll have more information on that. But I think it's important for us to remember that, like, we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow with the people around us that we care about. Um, Joe impacted so many people here that, like, we're learning about that we had no idea. He was our Barnabas. He was our encourager. Uh, the last conversation he had with me was one where he was like, I'm so excited for Redemption Church. I'm so excited for you. You're going to be a great pastor. And at the time, those words meant the world to me. And now looking back, I'm just like, gosh, I want to be a man like that. I want to be an encourager. I, it's so easy for me to pick stuff apart. Um, and so that's sad and it's heavy and I had planned on doing this sermon long before we found that out. And I feel like for those of us that are wrestling with that reality, there's a good number of us that are, that knew Joe well and that are mourning and grieving um, his loss. This is an entirely appropriate sermon for that. Um, there are times when it seems like God is absent. There are times when we pray, but our prayer seems to be met with silence. And when we suffer and we pray, it seems especially cruel, right? right there's the type of prayer that we pray and it's met with silence because, oh man, uh, you know, I wanted to win the billion dollar lottery and I didn't win the billion dollar lottery. Did y'all not play? No? This is me? Okay. By the way, the congregation's allowed to remove a pastor at any point, so if that's a deal breaker for y'all. <laughs> uh, okay. Right, but that's not the type of silence I'm talking about. I'm talking about when like the unimaginable and the unthinkable happen, when it seems like, uh, in the words of, right, I don't normally listen to contemporary Christian music, but this is one of my favorite contemporary Christian music songs. Uh, she says, when the sacred is torn from our lives... There are those things in our lives that you think, God would never let this happen, right? And then it does. What do we do then? How do we pray in the face of that? 
But praying these doubts of, of God's presence or God's power or God's goodness or love can actually, right, they're not going to change our circumstances. They might not even change our grief, but they can help us find something in the midst of that suffering. And that's what I want to look at today as we are examining what does it mean to pray we look to the Psalms to instruct us, to train us, to guide us in a life of prayer. One of the things that they teach us profoundly and over and over and over and over again is that we can take our suffering to God. And so we go to Psalm 22. I know it was really long. I'm not going to sit here and talk about every single verse, but I do want to quickly go through some, some high notes here, especially verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. And the reality is, is that at some point in our lives, we will question God. Right, if you are living long enough, there is something you are going to encounter that is going to mess you up, that is going to go against everything you thought that you believed about who God is and what God does and, and how God has promised to take care of you and provide for you. There will be a moment when the sacred will be torn from your life and you'll be left standing there going, God, what the heck? And so the psalmist's experience, their, their real lived reality is turned into questions, but not introspective questions. They boldly turn to God, and their experience and their doubt and their suffering is turned into prayer. And in prayer, they question God. God's abandoned them. God is utterly gone. He's far away. Why? Where? Verse 3, he goes on, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our ancestors, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And in some sense, there's like a little bit of like hope in some like, hey, I know that you've showed up in the past, but there's a, a marked juxtaposition between the reality of the psalmist and the history of the psalmist people here. Wait, you listened when they cried out. I'm crying out and you don't seem to be responding. You don't seem to hear me. Why are you not answering me? And the psalmist begins to see herself as someone who's cursed. Maybe not a part of God's people after all. Maybe abandoned by God for good. And so they continue in verse 6. But I'm a worm and not human. Scorned by others and despised by the people. All who seek me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. And so if God has inter intervened in the past and God's not intervening for me now, then it must not be God. It must be me. And our doubts shift from God's faithfulness to our worthiness. Maybe God hates me. Maybe I deserve this. Maybe this is exactly what I should get. Maybe God's punishing me. 
And the psalmist looks around and no longer sees God's protecting presence, but is instead surrounded by enemies and mockers. That in their time of need, instead of finding help, they just find someone who's just twisting the knife deeper into their back, pouring salt on the wound, mocking them. Has God abandoned the psalmist? Verse 9. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. So uh, I think we read this or hear this a little bit differently than the Hebrew like, is intending for it to, to read. So we read this and we're like, Oh, that's really nice. Like you, you, uh, you caused me to be born, and you provided for me in my mother's breast. And this is a wonderful picture of like warmth and security. But what's actually happening is the opposite. The language used for like you took me from the womb is like you ripped me out of the womb. I was warm and happy and safe and provided for in there, and you took me out of it. You caused me to have to depend on my mother's milk in order to survive. And then verse ten. And it was upon you that I was cast. All right, and when you hear that, we're like, ah, oh, yeah, cast your cares in the Lord. Wait, wait what, what's actually being said here? So this is the same word that's used when like Lucifer is cast from heaven to earth or when Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. It's the same word that Hebrews would have used to talk about someone abandoning their child. They would cast them away. The picture here is not necessarily a positive one. I was taken from my mother's womb, and I've been cast upon you, God. Right? It is one of like, hey, I didn't have a choice in this. I didn't pick you and say, hey, take care of me. You picked me and said you were going to take care of me. Where are you? From the time I was born, you have been my God. I did not have a choice in this. I was raised up in this. Where are you, God? I was secure, I was provided for, I was safe in the womb, and you brought me from safe ma- safety, and I've depended on you, and look where I'm at. You ever been there? I think at some point we will be. I think many of us are there. You ever been ready to give up on God, but you don't really have anywhere else to turn? Angry at God for not taking care of you? Despairing and angry for not showing up in your darkest hour of need? The Psalms has language for this. I've shared a little bit about this before. So my wife and I struggled with infertility for almost a decade. And in the midst of that, uh, we had prayed and prayed and prayed, and we finally got pregnant, right? And that's not a guarantee. And we knew that. That didn't take the sting of any of that away. We were finally pregnant, and we were very anxious about it. It was about six years, seven years in. And so we had to go to these, as a high-risk pregnancy, so we had to go to these follow-ups. Like every two weeks, we would go for a follow-up for uh, ultrasound, just to check on things, make sure everything was progressing the way that it should. We did this every two weeks of like, oh my gosh, is this going to be the week where we're like disappointed and devastated? 
And we went, and we went, and everything was good, and everything was good, and everything was good. And I remember exactly where I was when I had this sudden thought in the hallway at Texas Children's Women's Pavilion. This is the first appointment where I'm not, like, anxious about anything. This is, like, the first appointment where I haven't really, like, actively, like, been like, God, please take care of this, right? Like, I feel pretty comfortable, pretty confident going into this appointment. It would have been our, like, last two-week one where we could have gone into a more, like, normal rhythm of, like, pregnancy life um, and done, like, month or six weeks follow-ups or whatever they're supposed to be. Um, Along with being not a clinical psychologist, I'm not an obstetrician, so... Is that the right one? Is that the right doctor? Okay, all right, good, thank you. Ladies, appreciate the nods. (laughs) And in that moment, in that hallway, I can still see it in my head, I had the thought, no. Like, God wouldn't let this happen, not now. We go into the appointment, and it's, uh, if you've ever been there, I know a lot of us have, in those little rooms, those little dark rooms where they're doing the ultrasounds, they have this like really annoying uh, jazz music. It's like Kenny G covers. Um, It's just like softly playing in the background. Um, And the song changed and this annoying jazz music is playing and they start doing the ultrasound and it looks different to us. And we're realizing as we're looking, I'm all of a sudden going, wait a second, this, something's not right. No one's saying anything. The room is silent and just stupid jazz music. And I'm like, I don't, I don't see a heartbeat. There's, there's supposed to be a heartbeat, right? Like I remember seeing something here, and I don't see it here. And it seems, it seems lifeless in ways that it didn't seem lifeless before. And I suddenly... It, like, it hits me, and I realize what's happening. I'm like, oh, my God, does she know what's happening? And I'm, I'm just stuck, and I'm frozen, and the room is silent. The tech doesn't want to say anything because, right, they're not supposed to. But I'm, I'm looking at her like, what's happening? Is this happening? And just stupid jazz music. And my wife starts to weep. And I'm stunned. I can't bring myself to feel anything in that moment. And the room is silent. Stupid jazz music. And suddenly I realized what music was playing. And I was so angry. The song that was being covered by this stupid saxophone was how great is our God. In one of the worst moments of my life, I'm hearing this stupid song, how great is our God, the one we sang last week. And in my mind, in that moment right there, my answer to you was not very great, not to me, not right now. Where were you? We begged you for this. Where were you? We asked you to to protect this life. Where were you? In our darkest hour, it seemed like God didn't show up. There's no sound. There's no answer to our questions. 
No word from the Lord of any sort. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Why do you not answer me? If we've not lived here yet, we will, unfortunately. Right? This is the reality of what it means to live in a broken world. So what do we do with this? What does this have to do with pray, praying? How do I take this and somehow connect it to prayer? Well, I want to talk briefly about the place of lament and prayer. Lament is the practice of our taking our grief, our doubts, our pain, our suffering, and throwing it back to God. Most of us have like these sanitized and compartmentalized ideas of what prayer ought to be. Well, I, I could never say that to God, or I shouldn't say that to God, or I can't say that to God. We were taught to rejoice in the Lord, but never to cry to God, much less cry out to God. But we need to bring our grief and our suffering and our anger to God. We have to. It is a necessity for spiritual life. It is a necessity for communion with Jesus. And the lament psalms show up more than any other type of psalm, right? So there's all these types of genres, and there's some disagreement about how many there are, like 7 to 12, depending on which Old Testament scholar you ask. But lament is like one of the ones that are like, oh, no, no, we know what a lament psalm is. It begins with things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And lament psalms account for more than a third of the psalms, a third, showing up more than praise or thanksgiving or royal psalms or psalms of trust. Lament psalms show up more than any other psalms. These were the prayers of Israel more than any other prayer. They cried out to God in their grief, in their anguish, and in their suffering more than anything else. And so our prayers need to be filled with lament. They have to be. If our real life is going to be lived in the presence of God, well, uh, real life is hard, y'all. <laughs> Maybe uh, I'm just actually cursed, and y'all are like, what is this guy talking about? My life's been great. And if real life is hard and we're going to actually live our lives in the presence of God, then it should only make sense that we take the hard parts of our lives and cry out to God in prayer. Our prayers should be filled with lament. They teach us that our questions are okay. They teach us how to pray in the face of God's silence. And they teach us that prayer does not need to be polite. It needs to be real. And even in those moments where you don't know, like, I don't have the words, I'm so, I'm just hurting right now, you have two options. One, just sit in silence in the presence of God. That is a very legitimate thing to do. It is a very legitimate spiritual practice. We underestimate the power of sitting in silence in, in God's presence. But number two, we can actually, like, go to Psalms, like Psalm 22, and we can let those words become our words and speak them back to God, cry them back out to God. Verse 12. 
Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths to me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My mouth is dried like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. My God, where are you? So there's some uh, rabbinic teachings about like, wait, what's going on here? What's David, who's probably the author of this psalm, like what's he actually describing? And their suggestion is that this is something that actually happened in his real life. And it's kind of a weird story. But it, like when you hear it, you're like, oh, wow, that kind of makes a lot of sense. At least part of it anyways. So the story is like David is out doing his shepherd thing. It's like early in the morning. The sun hasn't even come up yet. And he gets attacked by a lion. And the lion's like going after David. And, and all of a sudden David's like, oh, God, where are you? And the sun comes up and a deer shows up, which is why like this weird heading at the top, the doe of the deer in the dawn. You're like, what the heck does that even mean? And no one knows either, by the way. Like people are like, this Hebrew is so ambiguous. No one has any idea what this is about. Anyways, so the, the lion sees the deer and is like, oh, that's easier, pray. This thing's a little too feisty. And so it like runs. And like David is now like cried out to God and has been delivered by this deer. But then he's laying there bleeding and dying. He begins to be encircled by like jackals that begin to like tear at his clothes and like trying to like drag him off. And he fights them off and runs away and he lives happily ever after or not so happily ever after. But that's another story for another day. Verse 16, for dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and my feet have shriveled. Right, He's curling up into a ball. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Right, right. whatever the historical reality is of like why this psalm was written, it certainly doesn't have to live there. And we certainly experience being encircled by evildoers and being encompassed by things that want to do us harm all the time. And I think it's here that we forget. I, I, one of the profound realities that I have learned uh, the hard way is I forget that like the Christian tradition pretty confidently says, hey, that this world has been given over to evil. Like things are not okay. Like, as they are right now, like, this is not great, right? And yet somehow we've heard the gospel or variations of the gospel or have just somehow told ourselves, but, but if you believe in Jesus, it will be, right? And I'm not even talking about, like, the health and wealth, like, hey, you've got cancer, believe in Jesus, you won't have cancer anymore. I'm talking about the more subtle, like, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be a better businessman or woman. If you believe in Jesus, then like you won't actually really get sick. If you believe in Jesus, then like things will go well with you more so than they will with the people who don't believe in Jesus. But the New Testament seems to suggest the opposite is true. That as followers of Jesus, life will be harder and filled with more suffering than it would be without. We live in a world of darkness, chaos, enemies, and death. The world has been given over to evil, and to this day, it remains there currently. Part of our sanitized prayer is due to our unwillingness to acknowledge this fact. It's like we're afraid to let God know, like, everything's not great down here, God. Like, oh, no, we're cool. We're fine. Everything's, bless you. Right? 
Now we're dying on a vine. Where are you? If we ever think that prayer is escape from our trouble, we're missing it. The Psalms teach us that prayer does not rescue us from reality. Prayer drives us deeper into it. Prayer does not necessarily deliver us from pain. Prayer drives us deeper into the pain so that we can't anesthetize it with numbness. We have to feel the darkness because the darkness is bad. And rather than just going, you know what, I'm okay with little darkness. No, do not be okay with suffering. Do not be okay with darkness. God, where are you? The Psalms don't let us do that. They make us inhabit the world as it is, which is one in which everything is not okay. And in this way, we live in the hard and difficult tension of allowing ourselves to feel, to name, and to encounter darkness and death in ways that if we're just really honest, it would be a lot easier just to turn on Netflix and not do that, right? Verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Uh, I'm going to head to the end here. I wanted to share... Um, there's a powerful scene in uh, Shashuku Indo's Silence. If you never read it, it's great. The, Martin Scorsese did a movie about it. It's also really well done. It's very heavy, though. Um, right? It's very much like the sermon, I imagine. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's the story of these Jesuit uh, missionaries that go to Japan and they're trying to, like, you know, they're trying to find their old mentor, their old priest mentor, and they can't find him anywhere. They're like, did he die? Like, what happened to this guy? Um, and as they do, they encounter, like, the impoverished Japanese church that are, like, being horrifically persecuted. And one of the ways that they would be persecuted is they would be given the opportunity to go in and trample on this image of Jesus. And if you trampled on the image of Jesus, they'd be like, cool, we're all good here. We'll let you go. No torture for you today. You've denied your Lord. You've trampled on his face. We're good. And so one of these priests who is particularly like good and devout and righteous and is like really earnestly seeking God in the end is faced with this impossible dilemma. There are members of his congregation that are being tortured in front of him. And as they're being tortured, the inquisitor is saying, look, if you trample on the face of Jesus, you can save them. So he's, in, he's been faced with this impossible decision, and I wanted to, uh, to read this excerpt. So this is, there we go. All right. This is um, the priest's kind of like inner monologue. Lord, since long, long ago, innumerable times I've sought your face, especially since coming to this country, have I done so tens of times? When I was in hiding in the mountains of Tomogi, when I crossed over in the little ship, when I wandered in the mountains, when I lay in prison at night, whenever I prayed, your face appeared before me. When I was alone, I thought of your face imparting a blessing. When I was captured, your face, as it appeared, when you carried your cross, gave me life. This face is deeply ingrained in my soul. The most beautiful and most precious thing in the world has been living in my heart. And now with this foot, I'm going to trample on it. 
The first rays of the dawn of light appeared, and the light shone on his long neck, stretched out like a chicken, and upon the bony shoulders, the priest grasped for the fumi. That's the placard that has Jesus' image on it. With both hands, he brought it close to his eyes. He would like to press his own face against that face, trampled on by so many other feet. With saddened glance, he stares intently at the man in the center of the fumi, worn down and hollow with the constant trampling. A tear is about to fall from his eye. Ah, he says, trembling, the pain. It's only a formality. What do formalities matter? The inquisitor urges him on excitedly. Only go through with the exterior form of the trampling. The priest raises his foot. In it, he feels a dull, heavy pain. This is no mere formality. He will now trample on what he has considered to be the most beautiful thing in his entire life. On what he has believed most pure, on what his what is filled with the ideals and the dreams of man. Oh, how his foot aches. And then the Christ in the bronze speaks to the priest. Trample. Trample. I more than anyone know of the pain in your foot. Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. The priest placed his foot on the fumi. Dawn broke, and far in the distance, a cock crew. We need to be reminded that God is not outside of our suffering. It is, in fact, these words of Psalm 22 that Christ cried out in anguish with on the cross. God's seeming silence is met by God's entering into the darkness, even into the silence. That God himself entered into this with us. And so suddenly in our suffering, he is there. He's in our pain. He's in our forsakenness. He's in our being overcome by the chaos and death of the world. Christ is there with us. He's in it with us. And we realize the silence and absence are never the final word from God. That though it feels as if God is so far away right now, that God is not done speaking. The violence of Friday was unimaginable. The silence of Saturday was unbearable. Yet Sunday morning, the dawn arose and light drove darkness back and life conquered death. A real tangible hope was born. And in the anguish of heaven's silence, we find God with us. Even now, even in the silence. Before Psalm 22 is over, we will hear the words from the horns of the wild oxen, you have rescued me. Literally, the Hebrew says, you've answered me. I've cried out, I've cried out, I've cried out. Where are you, where are you? He answers. What follows is one of the most beautiful psalms of thanksgiving in the Psalter. But more importantly, and probably more unexpectedly for a lot of us, it's no accident that this prayer of thanksgiving that in Psalms 22 is followed immediately by the most famous psalm of trust in the entire Psalter. 
And if you go around and you start like doing some digging, you find that like most scholars are saying that these psalms are actually meant to go together. That the psalm uh, or the God of Psalm 23 is the God of Psalm 22. The absent God of Psalm 22 is the present God of Psalm 23. And there's some literary connections, right? I won't go into that with you unless you're super excited about that. Let's grab coffee and we can nerd out for like hours. But Psalm 22 paints a picture of a shepherd alone and surrounded by devouring carnivores, surrendered to the dust of death, abandoned by God, while Psalm 23 depicts one who is shepherded by God, cared for, refreshed, and renewed, even while in the midst of darkness. And in this prayer, we hear the reassuring voice of God. In the deepest darkness of the valley, I am with you. And your grief and your pain and your suffering and your doubt, I'm with you. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to be happy about it. You don't, right? It's not, I'm with you if. It's, no, 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 I am with you. And so we read in Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Our God speaks always and clearest in the cross. And one of the very clear things that the cross tells us is that God is with you. In your darkest moments, when it feels like he's a million miles away, God is with you. So God is with us in our suffering, our doubt, our anguish, our anger. And while it doesn't make sense of the senseless things that we have to endure, it reminds us that we're not alone and that God bears suffering along with us. And so in the meantime, we don't pray to a God we wish would hear us and come down from heaven but to a God who already has. We don't pray to a God we wish would hear us and do something about the unimaginable evil we endure. We pray to a God who already has. We don't pray to a God beyond our world of suffering, but to the God who has overcome the world by his suffering. Because God's speaking doesn't end with the cross, but continues into an empty tomb and an assurance that God is with us, and will one day return everything that has been lost. We pray, and we hope. And even in God's silence, we remember that God is with you. So practically, what I want you to do, as hard as it is, is in your suffering, pray. If you don't have words, just sit in silence. Just Create some space and some time to just sit before the Lord and just pray. Cry out to the God of the cross 
the suffering God, the dying God, knowing that he hears you and that he assures you, even now in the darkness, he's with you, preparing a feast for you, about to shame your enemies and rid the world of the darkness that haunts you. He reminds us that we don't have to live in the darkness forever and we won't. Dawn is actually and really coming. Let's pray. Jesus, I struggle to, to comprehend this. I don't have the answers. I don't know why you allow certain things to happen. But I cling to the fact that you're, you're with me in suffering, you're with us in suffering, that you haven't abandoned us. I cling to the fact that you have assured us that you will put an end to suffering, that there is a day coming when you will wipe dry every tear. A day where our rejoicing won't be inhibited by our suffering. A day bright and full and glorious. And until then, we cling to your love. Will you be with us? Will you comfort us? We need you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.